everyone. This is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name <laughs> My name is Caleb Mason and I am so glad and grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Joseph Minich to talk with him about his brand new book Bulwarks of Unbelief and the subtitle is Atheism and Divine Absence in a Secular age and you know here in the learner's corner what we try to do is just have uh try to have conversations to where we continue to learn and grow and today i'm talking with joseph and we're going to understand a little bit about what his some of the historical uh philosophical some of the ideas uh and and many various things that have, have gotten us to this point is what well, at this point in history as well, and if you've been listening for a while, this is stuff that I'm, I'm always just interested in, in learning about some of the historical influences, whether it be ideas or events or people that have gotten us to the moment in which we currently are in or some of the things that have affected us along the way. And if you enjoy that stuff too, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I just give bunches of recommendations for different things that I'm learning from and some of the things that I'm enjoying. And it could be anything from video games to music to books to podcasts to movies and tv shows or really really just anything it you're just getting all of my recommendations for what i'm enjoying and some of the things that are and what's making me think as well and usually uh there's there's a lot of overlap between what's making me think and what what i'm enjoying as well and again you could just go in the show notes and check that out and subscribe right there now let me tell you a little bit about joseph and then we are going to jump right into the conversation. So Joseph Minich is a teaching fellow with the Davenant Institute, and he is the founding editor of Advantes and editor of several volumes with the Devante Press. And he also hosts the Pilgrim Faith podcast as well. And as I mentioned earlier, his uh, most recent book, which he's authored, is Bulwarks of unbelief and without any further wait here is our conversation well joseph it is so good to have you on the podcast today no thank you thanks for having me yeah and you know just as we're getting started one of uh one of my favorite places to start conversations especially with people who have you know uh, completed works of art and in your case with bulwarks of unbelief i love hearing the origin story for what p- got people interested in like the stuff that they're working on and so i would just love to hear kind of your origin story with this yeah yeah so bulwarks of unbelief is my dissertation at the university of texas at dallas so it grows out of that it's a it's a it's a worked over slightly de-dissertated dissertated <laughs> version of a dissertation but the project grows out of, I suppose I, I could tell the personal side and then the academic side. Yeah. The personal side of it is just 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 being the sort of young man and you know raised in a homeschooling family in the '90s in the Dallas area. But being a young man in my my late teens and throughout my 20s and on in my early 30s, who experienced doubt about the question of God even as I was persuaded of God, that is to say, even as I'm kind of reading all these apologetics books, even as I'm um, 
you know, memorizing these arguments for the existence of God and really finding real help in, in a lot of those arguments. Why is it that there's this kind of lingering sense of, of doubt uh, that remains like, what if it's all false? Why, why, why does it feel that way if God is such a basic reality? Why does it feel that, um, that difficult perhaps at times to, to, to kind of really psych yourself into really thinking it's true, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and so, uh, like like many, uh, I think, young individuals, I went through a, a decent long period of that, uh, encountered Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, and that gave me a lot of help to kind of orient myself, not just philosophically, but maybe historically within what that experience uh, uh, meant. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, it just sort of generated into, a, I suppose, a set of questions I asked, which is, what is it? I suppose I began to ask, what is it about the modern world and the way it shapes us to experience reality uh, that perhaps has something to do with this, with why we experience doubt the way that we do? Um, and so what that became eventually, as I was asking questions like this and really trying to work through them, was a first little book I wrote called Enduring Divine Absence, which was really where I took the ideas that would become the dissertation and and and, and work them over in kind of seed form. And then Enduring, uh, then Bulwarks of Unbelief is really the worked out version of, uh, hey, here's what I think are really the conditions in the modern world that are shaping the way that we experience what it's like to believe and how orienting ourselves to those conditions uh, helps us to navigate through these 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 tensions we have in our own faith and to grow and mature and become more persuaded. So yeah, it's both personal and a personal thing that turned into an academic project and then into a book. Yeah, yeah. That, that's how it happens. That, that's how it happens so often, it seems yes, it's like. that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, just just following up on what you were saying, I think one of you you ask such a good question in the beginning of the book, and it and it's it's a question that I don't even. It's just so normal for us right now that it's it's almost an overlooked question. You ask, how did atheism even become a felt possibility? Which I feel like even for us today, it just feels it feels like an inevitability. Like, of course, this is something that always existed. Um, Right. But it didn't. It did not right. always exist. Can you talk right. to me about um, about even like time before that question was even asked and kind of like some of the things that led yeah. us to start asking that? Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, yeah, that, that's exactly in part where Taylor was so helpful is that uh, Taylor talks in a secular age about what he calls the subtraction story. And it's kind of this notion that what, what in our imagination, there's this sense that there used to be this world where people believed a bunch of kind of positive superstitious things. And what's happened over time is we've removed beliefs that people used to have. And, and so, whereas people used to believe in, you know, trees and fairies, uh, we've removed fairies from the picture and now all we're left with is trees. And so the subtraction story is atheism is a kind of remainder that's left over uh, once you get rid of kind of all the, the superstitious and, and religious baggage. And it can kind of feel to us a little plausible, like, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe we used to believe, believe a bunch of stuff. We got rid of a bunch of those beliefs and we're just kind of left with atheism as kind of just default beliefs that are super basic about reality or something like that. What, what Taylor shows is 
actually modern unbelief and atheism are suspended atop their own positive orthodoxies. They're just so basic and so deep that we've forgotten how to name them and what they are. But they're not just the remainder of what's left over when we negate things. They're positive comments. They're positive developments about the world that then epiphenomenally manifest in the actual conscious experience of, of atheism or, or agnosticism. But, but right, it's a... Uh, 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 th that is a long-winded way of saying exactly there is this period, it, it seems, for a, a lot of history where atheism, as we currently understand it now, really was not very plausible. We don't see atheism emerge uh, in any modern form, except in a very, very, very isolated handful of instances until about the 1750s. There's there's two or three instances you can find before that, though usually in like private journals and that, and that sort of thing. Um, but it doesn't become a very common position, something that, you know, like, like even by the 1750s, it's still like a couple of elites in Europe, you know, Diderot and Holbuck or, you know, folks like that. But even Voltaire is kind of reacting to atheists. Um, it's not a, it's not like a, there's not like a critical mass of people accepting atheism or free thought or agnosticism uh, really until the middle of the 19th century in most of Western Europe and in America. And that's kind of like the, the moment we see uh, uh, atheism become a, a living option for a critical mass of people, as opposed to just a very isolated elite phenomenon among some of the upper classes, you know, that it had been maybe for 100, 150 years prior to that. Um, yeah, and the catalyst for that is really the point of the book, right? It's sort of like what 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 is it that rendered it a felt option and what was it that rendered it so not a felt option you might say in the past um caveat i should say there there is some debate about whether there's atheists walking around in late antiquity uh but that, that you know i'm bracketing out that 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 for our purposes yeah 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 talk talk to me about what was present before that led to this question not even being asked and then even some of the movements that that led us as you know humanity to start asking that question yeah that's a that yeah okay that that does get into that question then yeah in, in a sense that's that is captured in the title of the book which is bulwarks of unbelief so so taylor of course talks about bulwarks of belief and what does he mean by that uh, bulwarks of belief for Taylor are the the many ways in which society was managed and set up prior to the modern order, such that God was not just so written into things as a sort of thought that we that we think or a thing we reference or a uh, we have a, a set of thick private practices that we engage in relative to God, but that God was so written into the social fabric into social exchanges, into architecture, into the measurement of time, uh, and so written into that corporately among everybody moving around in the same way, such that, and this is Taylor's argument, it just would have been very, very difficult for a pre-modern person uh, to find it plausible that God did not exist, given how written into kind of the conscious human experience reference to God was. Um, and and what you see, uh, what you see begin to change, of course, is well, it's 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 that itself. What I am referring to when I when I refer to bulwarks of unbelief, then, are the ways in which you might put it this way: the kind of background noises of reality mm -hmm. have changed such that 
uh, the way reality manifests to us is not obviously connected to God, but but perhaps, in fact, feels disconnected from God. And what might the basic way uh, to make that difference be? Or what might the, the basic way to slice that up be? I think it's just something like this. I think in a historic subsistence existence, that is to say, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, the average human existence is an existence where I am uh, uh, navigating around the world of crop making of a very stubborn small group of human beings, probably. Um, and I'm navigating around a world that has a highly agentic quality relative to me. That is to say, there are storms and animals and hills and trees, and they all act on me in stubborn ways. Most mm -hmm. people have had to navigate around those things as though they were living presences around which I have to navigate. That was as true of the natural world as it is as it was true of people and communities and that sort of thing. And really what I'm asking in the book then is, is what does the kind of cosmos feel like and, and seem like writ large in the mirror of a kind of subsistence existence where you're moving around in a world of agents? Uh, moving around in a world of living things. Mm -hmm. And what I argue is it's just very natural to read uh, God as the kind of foundation maker of a cosmos that feels like a collection of living things. Then in the mirror of that vision of creation, uh, the idea that there's a kind of living, a living thing, the living one, mm -hmm. you might say at the bottom of it all, is a, a very natural kind of felt inference, you might say. Um, Whereas in, in the context of, and this is really the meat of the book, in the context of a developing techno culture where contemporary technology and contemporary labor and contemporary migration patterns render it such that actually the world uh, uh, is not, it still is an agent, but it doesn't seem very much like an agent I have to navigate around because I can force it to kind of be whatever I want mm -hmm. according to my will. And then people likewise with the advent of the automobile and modern social conditions are such that I actually don't have to navigate around that stubborn stubbornly existing individual uh, uh i you know i can i can get a different group of friends you know that sort mm -hmm. of thing um and then you could likewise say and i think this is a another important one that's just putting the technological side of it yeah. the other thing we should do is contrast the labor that the labor itself uh in the past was one that even if it was annoying and hard and difficult it was very clear why i was doing it it's you know to get food Whereas modern labor, which is done for wages, it's actually not, ex you know, I know that I'm doing it to get money, but the immediate meaning of the labor itself is obscured a, a bit. And so what the question winds up being is kind of in the mirror, you might say, of that experience of the world, where my labor in its own agentic dimension is a bit obscured, where the agency of the world and the community is a bit obscured where does God manifest in the mirror of that experience of the world? And it might be natural in that context to feel like it seems like non-agency, non-livingness all the way down. And so atheism might feel kind of viscerally and existentially like a felt option when in fact it's, it's not metaphysically an option, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So just to make sure that I'm following you, a lot of it just, I would imagine has to do a lot with individualism as well too that we become our own um that is kind of like me and in my world and there's you and your world and i'm kind of in control of my own world yeah that's definitely 
definitely, you know, you know, not that I, uh, you, you know, the word individualism is such like, you know, there's, there's good things about the development yeah. of the individual, but yes, in that the individual, uh, it becomes a kind of the isolated individual yeah. and that, right. That, you know, every man in his home, in his castle. And then there's that sense that I don't have to, I'm not, uh, compelled in a sense to develop my individuality around others other individuals that I just have to be around. Mm -hmm. I can freely elect to kind of be away from them. And that's a kind of microcosm of the whole. That is to say, I can elect to be away from the agency of the created order in general. Oh, it, well, the sun went down. It doesn't matter. I can flip yeah. this light switch on and there's a sun above my head. And yeah. so like the whole agency of everything in a sense is suspended and, and the livingness of God uh, when the uh, in, in a sense, the icon of God, which is the livingness of created things, becomes obscured when those created things and their agency is a bit obscured for us in our experiences of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be curious to hear, you know, you um, you mentioned that this this really became a lot more prominent in like the mid 19th century. And here we are today, you know, 150 yeah. years later. What what are some how was how that? um how has that intensified or how has it changed a little bit in, in the 150 plus years? Yeah. You see the intensification of it. The significance of that day is of course you, you have the general migration of, of European populations and American populations to the cities. And so by the middle of the 19th century, you have a massive amount of populations living in cities. And it's in that context that you're going to tend to feel the suspension of the world. Not that I'm against living in cities. That was never yeah. the point. But you're going to tend to feel the suspension of the world and enter into a kind of labor, which is labor for wages, and then feel the suspension of your own agency and your labor. And so it's, yeah, that that's the kind of context where you see atheism develop is, is out of that. Um, that uh, develops um, an atheism with it. Those modes of labor develop, obviously, into the modern middle classes, you know, a lot of the story of America and the West after, you know, the middle of the 19th century is kind of the development of urban, urban, urban laborers uh, into the modern middle class, you know, various things that, you know, keep a kind of stable middle class in America and that sort of thing. With all of that, and none of this is coming from any kind of ideological critique of the middle class. I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. no bourgeois values and, you know, that sort of thing. Or, you know, and I'm, I'm not coming from any of that. It is nevertheless the case that with that growth uh, comes a growth in uh, elective communities. So you're able to kind of manicure your communities, a growth in you, you uh, see both a, a growth in that kind of labor, uh, even though there's kind of workers' rights that compensate for some lost agency and labor. Nevertheless, the basic mode of kind of like working for wages and wages playing the role that they do in the modern economy, uh, effectively wage slavery, uh, you know, selling your labor competency for another for wages, that mode of labor increases and becomes far, far more normalized throughout the period while the dependence on technology becomes more normalized, while the manicuring of community becomes more normalized. And effectively in those contexts, I think you see unbelief, the plausibility of unbelief actually develop. In mm -hmm. fact, um, most sociological analyses of unbelief uh, at this point, look at those kinds of factors like upper middle class or, you know, you know, suburban, you know, household, you know, that sort of thing. Those actually are becoming the predictive factors for unbelief. Like <laughs> it's not that 
unbelief causes the world to grow into these things. But once you have these things, the probability of unbelief is gets quite high. Um, uh, yes. So it, eff effectively, the, the, the experiences of the de-agentification of the cosmos, I think, in various ways increase uh, until, you know, you know, well into the 60s. And then you see a kind of another swell of unbelief after that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. do you think that's because we become... Is that because we become more self-sufficient and so we think that we don't need to depend on God as much or or what do you think about that? I do think that's part of it. Certainly there is a certainly a loss of um kind of the felt dependency on others and the felt um yeah, maybe maybe I could I could I'm using the word agency, but you could talk about the word dependency relative to that. Yeah. In one sense to live in a community where you don't choose your neighbors, uh, to live in a community where, or to live in a space and a place where you have to navigate around the natures of things that are around you, animals and trees and that sort of thing. They're stubborn agents, just like stubborn people are around you. Uh, and where the use of your hands and your life and your labor is immediately for the benefit of yourself and those around you, where there's that, that level of connection. Um, um can you remind me what the question was yeah i i was just saying do you think it's through like those those advantages or those gains that we gain from like moving up in the middle class or from the middle class to the upper class and so on and so forth that leads to like us not having to depend as much on god Yes, I think there's a lot to that connection. I think the loss of kind of a forced agentic contact with things. So the loss of my, the, the, the necessity of engaging with people around me and the, even the space and the nature around me is the loss of those spaces in which dependence and trust develops. Uh, we don't just depend and depend on and trust mm -hmm. in people we we grow dependence and trust in the context of engagement with them and often engagement we didn't really choose uh, and so yeah i think there's a deep connection between the loss of those kinds of contacts well then and then there's just the loss of that that space within which trust is developed and yeah i don't think that could possibly but affect our relationship with god and and, and that sense of dependence in a larger uh, uh, in a larger sense, of course, we actually do depend in some deeper ways, yeah. but it becomes subliminated. Yeah. It becomes subliminated and, and unnameable to us in some ways. Yeah. Well, we, we delude ourselves. Yes, that's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Absolutely. Uh, yep. You know, just, just as you were talking, one of the things that came to my, uh, came to my mind is you were talking to our dependency on our neighbors as well. We were a lot more dependent in the past. I thought about, um, you know, me and my wife were living at this apartment right now and, uh, at the apartment, you don't get to choose who else go, who else is in the apartment complex. Yes. You. you have to figure out, okay, how am I going to live with these people? Because, you know, until they move out or until we move out, we're here, we're stuck with each other. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to touch on a little bit more of uh, the historical components yep. that you had alluded to earlier, uh, because I think that's that's one thing. And again, this just goes back to um, what I what you were talking about already. I think we underestimate the impact that history or historical events have happened to lead us to this moment. Yes. As well. And I would just love for you to touch a little bit more on that. Yeah. So one of the reasons we can see that, just to kind of reiterate what I was saying earlier, is that, you know, we find again... 
you know, a handful of atheists really early in the 1600s, uh, but often like again in private writing, so they're not publicizing it. Uh, by the 1750s, it's still wildly implausible. By the early 19th century, you have a handful of European adherents among the left Hegelians and few, a few others. Yeah, the historical events that I think make it plausible, I mean, it really is the it is the Industrial Revolution, I think. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think it is the, the uh, in a sense, what, when talking about the de-agentification of the cosmos earlier, what's implied there or kind of behind that is, is this movement that's several centuries long, really, in Europe, uh, where you, you have the privatization and enclosure of the common lands, which means that, um, you know, you can't just go build a house somewhere. You can't just go chop down a tree or, you know, go live off the forest or the land or something like that. And you, and you also progressively have the loss of like feudal uh, use rights, which is how a lot of, you know, people would still live on land. You give some to the surf lord or whatever, but you you mostly are just working immediately on a piece of land and, and, and caring for yourself and your family. What really I think changes is really that that is the epochal change to me is is the transition from that being a normal way of life uh, to the the, the pro gradual migration to the cities and the way that that changes the average human existence. And, and, and really the shift in our relationship to God really is just a shift in that that ordinary human way of relating to the world and to one another that happens predominantly in the cities at first that's where this particular kind of labor and its and its relationship to money its loss of uh, relationship to immediate meeting uh, meaning um uh, is really kind of at its climax and at, at its zenith and so i guess yeah i guess i'd say the industrial revolution is kind of your that's your predominant historical moment uh, but then of course it 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 uh, we could talk about the growth of that kind of labor and, 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 and dependence on technology throughout the 20th century, though though maybe you're alluding to something else. That's the material culture side of the equation. Are you also thinking of kind of the intellectual factors that are that are? Yeah, let's go there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So certainly. One of the reasons I asked uh, Carl Truman to write the foreword to the book because uh, of course he's written this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Yep. And, and Carl Truman in that book is is talking about he's really giving an intellectual pedigree to a lot of our modern concepts of the self. But mm -hmm. he notes throughout the book that you can't really tell this story without telling it as a uh, 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 a story that also has a material history pedigree. It's ideas and intellect together. I'm sorry, ideas and and culture together, ideas and material mm. conditions together, uh, that always make up a kind of lived, like a, an actual lived context. So yeah, in that sense, the book does in the first chapter, there is a there is a kind of survey. Uh, in the first chapter, there's a survey of various proposals for the intellectual pedigree to the modern kind of plausibility of atheism or just to modernity in general. Uh, and so there's a lot of important things to point out there. Like you can talk about the yeah, the role of developments in late medieval thought. You could talk about um, uh, the role of the Reformation, uh, the role of the Enlightenment. You could talk about um, um, uh, the the role of Cartesian philosophy in developing kind of modern thought, um, the role of the mechanical philosophy and um, uh, the development of the sciences and the development of modern mental habits. And in a sense, what, what I see, what I try to argue in the book 
is that none of those really get, all of those account for various pieces of gradual change, but God is still part of the kind of cosmic picture after a lot of those developments. And what you really have then, what I'm really trying to do in the book is identify why is it with all of those developments, and it's true that the the the, the loss of God, you might say, would never have happened without all of those pre-developments. Um, mm -hmm. But it's nevertheless at this particular moment that it seems like people say, okay, we actually don't need the God concept anymore. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my book is like, why is it at this moment? Maybe all of these like intellectual movements are that without mm -hmm. which you don't get here, but it happens here and not over here. And, and mm -hmm. why is that? And that's where the material culture side helps, you know, say, well, the industrial revolution, you know, that sort of thing helps explain why it's happening here, even though there's, there's um, the sayability happens earlier, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to go back to if if I heard and if I didn't hear you correctly, you know, you can you can correct me. But um, I remember you saying that that these ideas were something that you originally published in your first book. Right. And then you expounded on them for yes. your second book. OK, so I would be curious to hear in between book, you know, book one in this book. What's what's some of the things that you learned that either like just really surprised you or um, or just you personally took away from it? Yeah, yeah. So what really what really changes between the two books is that the first one predominantly focuses on technology. So it's a similar mm -hmm. argument, and it's sort of, you know, how does our experience of the world uh, mediated to us through technology shape our experience of it, and therefore how we read God off the, the canvas of the cosmos, as it were. Um, but I didn't talk a lot about labor. You know, technology is kind of uh, uh, suspending in some way. It's 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 um, between us and well, maybe that's overstating it, but roughly speaking, technology is sort of between us and the voice of creation speaking in itself. You might say, um, but labor is uh, labor is the active way in which we relate to our own meaning and to the created order. And uh, I think what happened in the second book and what I really started to reflect on was not just how does modern technology shape the way we perceive reality, but how does modern labor, that active component of being a human, shape the way in which we might be tempted to experience the cosmos as meaningless. So for instance, if you go and do uh, a, a, a kind of work every day uh, that you don't really care that much about, uh, 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 even if, again, in a subsistence existence, even if your labor was boring and monotonous, you cared about it so much because it was very clear why you were doing it. Well, if I don't mm -hmm. do this hard work, we're going to die. Um, there's something about the very nature of a lot of modern labor where I'm doing 50 hours of work to get this abstract thing called money which is then used to go buy the resources necessary for survival. That's not how most humans have lived in the history of the world. That's, a, that's another important thing. The role that money plays in the mediation of survival is very new. Uh, and that, that actually becomes the role that labor plays because labor is now necessary to secure this thing called money to go get the resources necessary for survival. And that that creates a relationship between labor and meaning that I think has been an existential crisis and that is also deeply shapes our readings of the cosmos and our experiences of things. Uh, and I think it's a, yeah, I think a kind of primal modern condition, um, mm. the, that particular thing, especially. Mm. Yeah. That even just makes me think, and uh, 
just make sure I'm following, I'm following you. And it, like, we need the money because we won't get, we, we're not going to depend on each other. <laughs> like, you know, maybe someday or, you know, back then it was, well, Hey, I, I might not have the, I may not have the resources or anything like that, but my neighbor, you know, my brother, whoever yes. might be willing to help me. But now I need to make as much money as possible because it all depends on me. Yes, you have, you both have a, a, yeah, right. There's much deeper interdependence in communities in the past. You know, not to say that, you know, the modern world's bad and that there's not benefits to to having our arrangement, but you also just have the fact that life quite literally um, wasn't mediated by money for the simple fact that like, say, you know, if you live on the commons or if you live on a, in a, in a a surf context and you have use rights of land, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you quite literally are just planting food and then picking the food and eating it. You quite literally are just building a house and it's not, you're not paying a rent uh, to live there, except that you're giving some of your crops away. But especially if you're on like the true thick commons now, that's going to be vulnerable to bandits. And there's all sorts of dangers of, of being too on the frontier in any human community. On the other hand, um, uh, work just is quite immediately for life. Um, and so, um, uh, right, part of what the dependence on money represents is that you don't actually, the loss of the commons means uh, now to live somewhere, I have to pay rent. Mm-hmm. That has just not been true for most of history. It has not been the case that to live somewhere, you've literally had to do this thing called pay rent or that mm-hmm. to get food, you've had to buy food at a place called a market. And so money takes on this role and then access to money takes on this role and it becomes, you know, and there's there's benefits to that. There's lots of benefits to the modern world economy and that sort of thing, but there's there's losses to that as well. And that's a lot of what we're talking about are the, the compensations for those losses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be curious to hear, like, and obviously I know you don't know this, but I'd be curious to hear, you know, your your guess or your hypothesis. Like, do you see this changing or how do you see this changing over like the next, you know, couple of decades or so? Or is that something we can even Yeah, have? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, it's like humans, I, I think it's clear that humans are not meant to endure the degree of social and cultural disorientation that we have. And, uh, 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 and I think that it's, clear when we look at various cultural movements and here i'm thinking of folks like tara isabella burton in her book strange rights and various mm-hmm. other other things it's clear that we're trying to resolve that disorientation uh, uh in various ways it's hard to say how long we're going to be inside of it i i do think modernity just is a moment of civilizational and, and, and ecclesiastical and existential disorientation i think we're just inside of that um, I don't think that it's going to last forever. Uh, uh, presumably, some civilizational equilibrium is inevitable, whether that be through apocalypse, like everything blows up and <laughs> we're just reduced half back down to a simpler yeah. situation, or you know, we get our act together in some fundamental way that you know we we can't quite imagine. But what does that look like on the order of time? You know, is very hard to say. I would imagine that. Uh, you know, we're talking about a modernity that we're already dating 100 since 150 years ago. We're already reading people speak with the kind of disorientation that I've spoken about here by the end of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, and even though that's gone on, presumably it ends, but, you know, we're still very much in the thick of it. And I don't know, a century or two, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it'll be a little yeah, there'll be a little more equilibrium. But it, yeah, that's hard to say. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I, I kind of want to uh, turn the conversation unless there's anything else, you know, describing kind of, kind of the, um, I don't know, I guess like the, the problem that we face or the challenge that we face, I want to turn a little bit more um, to the solution that you propose um, in your book. But the first thing I want to ask, and I think it's, um, I think it's Max Weber's work that I think that you reference in this. And I think he says, um, you know, sometimes we think that in order to find ultimate meaning we have to make an intellectual sacrifice for it or we have to have, or it's just going to be like a, Hey, that works for you. You know, that works for you and right. your experience or, Hey, that works for you and your relationships. Can you kind of speak to that and why, like why that doesn't have to be the case, why we don't have to sacrifice intellectually and why it doesn't just have to be, you know, for people, for us specifically. Yeah. One of the, uh, you know, we talk about the disenchantment of the world, and I think it's really important for us to talk about the disenchantment of humans. Yeah, It's actually humans who are disenchanted. And right, there is that sense that is, you know, you know, it's just part of the modern world and part of our imagination, that meaning is all private, uh, you know, that we have private subjective meaning about objective kind of public raw datum, uh, uh, raw datum that... Um, yeah, that doesn't shine out in its meaning in any in any way from itself. You know, that's all just the projection of private values and subjectivities onto an object, you know, that sort of thing. Um, that's um, in one sense, I think the answer the answer to that is actually just to say that's it's impossible for you to know that. <laughs> in yeah. fact, that's not how, you know, Lewis starts his abolition of man with this sublime reaction to the waterfall for this reason, right? His, uh, uh, he's trying to comment on the uh, these British authors reducing the reaction to the waterfall to just being a subjective response to some objective pile of datum. But in point of fact, Lewis wants to say that's actually the most deep human reaction. Uh, uh, that That actually is, here's another way of putting it. That reaction really is the measure of reality relative to which all other gazes are scaffolding. Mm -hmm. And what we what we tend to do is to what what we can do in the discourse of science, and this is where meaning is more immediate. And I and I think this is really what I'm trying to. My answer is it's really to get back to the immediacy of meaning. Meaning uh, is not something that we bring from outside and then attach to the objective world, but something that's discovered in the immediate. I mean, in the immediacy of the encounter with the world, which is why humans experience meaning immediately, <laughs> immediately when you're caught up in things. And that's actually, and this is kind of the, the, the insight of the tradition, that's actually reality. The only reality, the only show that's really going on that you live inside of is the one where that's going on. And it's everything else is actually the abstraction. You saying, well, there's the subject and the object and they put together and really that's the problem. You've actually moved outside of reality, carved it up and are trying to kind of tinker toy it back together uh, when actually that that's reality itself. And what the tradition wants to say is we actually just need to start with the, and I think modern people need to realize this. We actually just need to start with this is reality right here. Uh, to remember to wake up in a sense to the fact that you're always already in the real world uh, and a lot of these uh, philosophical materialist scientific descriptions are actually abstractions themselves already away from uh, what your real world always already is uh, and there's almost kind of a gestalt shift that comes I think with waking up to one's own experiences like that 
what like for that real like again this this might be such a simplistic question no 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 but, no, no not at all um, yeah. but i but i i i think that we could do such a good job of deluding ourselves in this and i'd be curious to hear like what do you look for in like in reality and like I said, it's a simplistic question. Oh, no, but, no, yeah, yeah no, it, it, it's it's a very helpful question. You know, when I talk about reorienting ourselves um, to reality, I guess, yeah, I guess it's not looking for anything in the sense that I'm that I'm trying to explicate it. It's more the, that um, coming to coming to grips with the notion that this whatever we're calling subjectivity and trying to reduce to subjectivity is the only place where the world and I come together and I experience it. So what happens in a lot of scientific discourse, right, is that it's like we look at our, the textures of our experiences, you know, ah, I'm, um, you know, I'm experiencing attraction to that girl right now, yeah, or something like that. Uh, and then an article gets written that says something like, well, science shows that what's really going on here, mm -hmm. or it's like, I'm in time right now. Well, science shows that what's really going on at the level of physics is that temporality really, and so well, we do this all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. So like, oh, wow, that's a sublime waterfall. Well, what's really going on is that you're a subject and that's an object and blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. so we have this whole discourse that separates uh uh, that that carves up what mm. for us uh, initially was just an encounter with the world that was meaningful. Mm. And that's, and so when I say being oriented to reality, in a sense, it's like, if we're just being scientists about it, the yeah. raw datum, what's the raw datum from which you separated out anything? It actually just was not a subject object that was cleanly apart. Mm. It was you smashed up into things and saying sublime. That's reality everything else is exegesis of reality and so and what i think we forget is that, that what we what we have have by our habits learned to do is to treat reality like it's actually the commentary on the real thing that we then go rediscover in our heads uh uh and and that that to me is like the the primary modern kind of uh myth uh, almost is that we're we're trying to get back to the concrete world in our in our minds rather than coming back to we're right now you and i talking is the concrete world that's the yeah. real thing uh uh and it's immediately one where meaning is unabstractable you don't actually have any sense of how to make sense out of move around in describe uh that world without already being in a world where subjects and objects are bound up with one another through a meaningful relation mm. yeah, yeah you know i i'd be curious to hear what are some of the, like the, the, I guess it's the habits that you see that are like trying to, trying to strip that away from us. Like one, one just that you were talking about is like the habit of like, okay, we need to explain what's happening right here. And through explaining what's happening, we're taking out the meaning of it. And so I would just be curious to hear, are there any other, like, and again, I don't know. Like, I don't think that there's someone who's, like, intentionally trying to create these habits in us, but it's more like these cultural habits, these cultural things that are that are right. influencing us to these, to, to, um, to take up these habits of, you know, in this case, like, explain in a way. And I'd be curious to hear, are there any other, like, habits like that that you're seeing that people are just living out? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'd say like a lot of our in a in a in a kind of bureaucratic era, in a technological era, in a and this is here I'm speaking mostly of America. Um, we're a very managerial culture. I would say that we have very um, kind of engineer brain mental habits, very kind of kind of pragmatic engineer brain mental habits. Uh, technical solutions, problems tend to be treated as technical. Humans and the solution to uh, human problems tends to be technical in nature. Church problems, the solution to theological problems, uh, <laughs> the the very language with which we approach the solution to problems can often get kind of kind of kind of um, caught up in that style of mind. Um, and so, I think that uh, the the set of mental habits that uh, the modern world has given us are just so deep in us and deeply shape our relationships. Uh, that it's almost hard to it's almost hard to name where they're not yeah. <laughs> harder to yeah. say where they're where they're not than where they are. I, I, you know, when I speak about mental habits, I'm really speaking about the deepest ways in which just just even the ways we've been taught to describe things, uh, 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 you know, makes a, a pathway in the brain. Right. It's like mm -hmm. a, it, it helps you gaze with a certain style of mind. And I would say our style of mind is very engineer brainish. Um, and uh, you add to that a social experience where we have such elective relationships to our communities. Again, if you're not forced to, to have uh, a kind of small knit communities smash into each other, then human beings by virtue of social habit, likewise, tend to become abstractions. Um, and uh, that is to say, they tend to be people I meet in, um, uh, they tend, tend to be people I meet in manicured settings. And in America, especially, communities are often formed around, or, or, or friendship networks are formed around common interests. Like mm -hmm. we all like theology, we all the same politics, or we all like fishing or something like that. Um, because we're not forced to be around each other. Um, and I think that uh, the making our friendships uh, points of contact that largely develop through elective common interests also tends to have us also tends to inculcate a, tr a habit of relating to people in maybe a bit of a instrumentalizing way and also a very ideological way. So, um, uh, the more people become those people I relate to by virtue of agreeing with them, then what is a person? A person is a walking social program, Democrat, mm -hmm. Republican. Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes easier to name people, not in the rich textures that you find them through a whole life, but through the abstractive points to which I know them. I know that person as the disagreeer with me about X. Yeah. And you add social media to this, of course, and that just makes it more exponential, right? <laughs> I don't know any, but, you know, there's people that you've been friends with all your life and then you get on social media and all you really talk about on social media is politics and religion. And yeah. so now what do they become in your imagination of them? The filing cabinet you have in your brain of, you know, little John over there, uh, you know, formerly it was a bunch of things. Oh, he was the guy I went to Boy Scout camp out with or whatever. And but now it's like I have a million inputs where it's little John the moron, you yeah. know, who says those dumb things on the Internet, you know, yeah. uh, and it tends to to all of that those encounters shape us i think to relate to people a, a, a particular way you can mm -hmm. add the dimension of film what does the uh, a culture awash in the image tend to do with our relationship with people and yeah all those sorts of things yeah mm -hmm.
you know, you, you have this, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great quotes in the book. One of, one of them that I want to get your thoughts on and, and ask you a question about is you say maturity involves not only the capacity, uh, to the capacity to, the, <laughs> let me start again. Maturity involves not only the capacity to perform a particular action, but also the refusal to do so, which I just, I love that so much. I would love to ask, what's one thing that we can become more mature in, in terms of starting to do something in regards to this and stopping to do, stopping something? Yeah. So, yeah, toward the end of the book, it's it's like, you know, you set up talking about our challenge and then it's sort of like, well, yeah, here we are. We're going to feel the self-relativization of our beliefs. We're going to feel the self-relativization. You could extend the analysis in the book. And that's what I'm doing right now in the book, the book, the book that I'm writing mm -hmm. is trying to extend this analysis to kind of a larger cultural thing, which is, yeah, we feel we feel like our belief is one option among many, and that changes what it's like to believe. You have a little more uh, a self-reflexive character with your belief. That's also true in the world of, of ever, everything right now. Um, it's true in the world of gender. You know, when you experience the enactment of being a male or female, where there's no social order telling you exactly how to be those things, that doesn't change what it is to be a male or a female any more than uh, self-reflexivity changes the truth of the gospel. But it changes your relationship to those things and how you go about forming yourself as a male or female. Uh, and so this is just a, a the kind of question I think that's happening all over the place. So, yeah, a couple of things. Certainly, like on the positive side, uh, when it comes to the existence of God, this is why I think reading apologetics for the more heady sorts around uh, around is actually a kind of spiritual exercise. That is actually how certain sorts of people help attune their mind to realities that it's very easy for your your sensoria otherwise to forget and be dragged down by because you you know we're living in a complicated circumstance. That's a that's a low hanging fruit one. I think another one is to what I try to do in the last chapter on the positive side is to sort of think about practices, ways that you can frame your you, you're going to have to choose to posture yourself before reality uh, in ways that consciously reinforce what you know to be true. And so you're not going to be forced to relate to people uh, in a non-instrumentalizing way. But what you do need to do is make space in your life to have relationships with people that aren't that aren't so manicured, where they can bump into you and their agency uh, mm -hmm. becomes an agency that shapes you in some way. And and I try to think of ways that we can relate to our own labor and you know, creatively and people in a way that kind of reinforces that agentic quality. But again, it's something that's chosen. And, 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 and then when you get to kind of something you can stop, I suppose, mm -hmm. you know, there I'm, you know, I'm not a Luddite, so I'm not the person saying, um, you know, uh, you know, get rid of your technology and don't have social media. And obviously you could make all the caveats about, you know, use it wisely. And, you know, there's the Andy Crouch book on the tech wise family. And I'm sure there's yeah. lots, lots of good stuff and that sort of thing. One thing I'd actually say, Jordan Peterson says something like this. And I, uh, uh, he says, don't do anything that you hate. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I think in modern labor, I will say this. Sometimes you do actually have to do a job that you hate, uh, and, and and God will give you mercy to, when you when you are forced into a circumstance like that. I do think, however, we should stop speaking as though it's normal to just go do something that you hate. 
Uh, actually, it's very, very bad for human beings to spend 40 hours of their conscious energy every week giving their services for purposes that they don't really care about uh, and which they hate doing to get a paycheck. And I think there are probably a lot of circumstances where it's actually much more godly and righteous and good for you and your family to make a little bit less money and not do something you hate. I actually think a lot of problems, a lot of problems come from a a, a kind of self-applied burden that 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 comes from that uh, that kind of thing. I, I think that's actually just something that's weird that we believe that we're supposed to do. And it's tied up in a certain kind of uh, faux masculinity culture where, you know, the guy who can do the things that he hate, more things that he hates the most, the most miserable one, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the most competent and good person. That's, I think, very bad for us. And uh, you need to develop, again, endurance and fortitude to deal with doing mm -hmm. things that you hate. You have to be able to do things that you hate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you shouldn't elect uh, to spend most of your conscious life doing something you hate because you will, it will, it will harm you spiritually and your family and those around you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that you talk about is uh, the role of wisdom as well. What, what would yeah. you say for us becoming more wise in this age? Yeah. Yeah, this is where, you know, when I talk about engineer brain and that sort of thing, I think a lot of time what we're trying to do in a, in a state of confusion is to recover uh, uh, the algorithms, even like in the recovery of something like natural law and that kind of discourse, for instance, right? Very often what we're trying to do is to recover that algorithm that's going to kind of work through all the noise and give us the answer to all the conundrum that we're facing and that sort of thing. And what wisdom, I think, is able to do is say, sometimes the world and the situations you're facing really are just very complicated. Uh, sometimes there's a situation that the law, qua law, doesn't deal with. So when uh, two women come to you with a baby and they both claim the baby is theirs, uh, there's no mosaic law uh, that tells you exactly what to do in that situation. You just have to be wise. Mm -hmm. And I think what wisdom is, is the, it, it's not getting our spreadsheet out here perfectly in order and memorized it's actually through knowledge and love through the properly oriented mind and will so internalizing the structure of the world uh, uh that when i encounter to the world uh, the, the the way of goodness and the way of righteousness and the way of folly are clear to me and you see this kind of in the in the transition again going back to that solomon analogy that transition between the role that the law plays in moses and in solomon uh paul can speak about the law uh in moses as a kind of pedagogue for infants you know, it's like young kids and you have your kind of do's and do nots. And it's like the way you speak to a young child is a lot of the way the law is, is written of. But then you have this moment in Israel's maturation, right, where we've got a kingship now. Uh, 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 and now Solomon writes this book of the Proverbs, instructing the young son, instructing the future king. And we're we're not not we're not beyond the law. We still need the law. But now our relationship to things and this is wisdom is this more internalized, like, hey, observe the world, let it teach you, internalize its principles, and then utter them, speak the world's lessons to you, that sort of thing. And then, of course, by the time you get to Christ, you have, like, the deepest internalization of the law and the spirit. Um, but, yeah, it's the it's the possession of the world and the soul 
Uh, and one way to think about wisdom is this, uh, yeah, it's the possession of the structure of the world in the soul such that I can act upon it. Uh, uh, and, and so in the, in the book of Hebrews, I love this phrase, uh, talking about the mature person who through, who, who because of practice has, has their senses trained to discern good and evil. So you think of that phrase in Hebrews, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern mm. good and evil. Um, and that's very different than saying who, you know, who because of, you know, uh, you know, sort of mental gymnastics have have their mind trained to deduce good and evil, who because of argument have had their mind trained to deduce good and evil. Uh, there's something more artful, actually, about wisdom and about the discernment of, mm. you know, the complication of moral and civil circumstance. And yeah, wisdom, it strikes me that that ancient motif is exactly what's needed in the modern era to to yeah to to move through a complicated circumstance and, and have a way to yeah yeah to evaluate when we're really operating out of love and when we're operating out of fear and hubris well i got one other thing i want to ask you but before that i know that there's lots of things that we could talk about we've covered a lot of different stuff is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we cover in to in regards to the book no, not really. Um, uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated by these interviews just because, you you know, people respond to it differently and ask different questions. And yeah, I've enjoyed these questions. So yeah, no, you keep going. This is okay. Uh, yep. Cool. I I absolutely, I love how you close, close the book. And I would love for you to just, uh, I'm going to read this quote and I would love for you to just uh, elaborate and wrap up our conversation. Sure. There. You say, God is only interested in his revelation being clear enough for the purposes he has in revealing himself. That is, God's revelation is about God's rather than humanity's goals. Yes. Yeah, so part of what I'm doing in the book, that's funny. Yeah, I guess I should mention divine absence, right? <laughs> part of the whole book is the whole book is premised on this notion that it, you know, God feels ambiguous and divine absence, the idea that he's not as clear as he could be, becomes a problem in the modern era, not just with the respect to the question of theodicy. You know, God not being as clearly here as he could be was always a question of like, you know, human suffering in the past. But the idea that he's not as clear as he could be being a, related to his existence, that's a new thing. And that's kind of how I how I develop the argument is when did that become a problem? Um Right. And part of the solution, I think, to that is, is 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 that quote. It's saying, well, yeah, in some ways God could be clearer, or at least it feels like, I'll qualify that in just a moment, it feels mm -hmm. like God could be clearer. Um, and so why doesn't he? And one of the things you want to say there exactly is that, well, God isn't just... It's our problem isn't just that we intellectually aren't clear enough about God. Our problem is that we're rebellious against God. And so, you know, God's clarity is only, uh, you know, apportioned to being clear enough to leave us without excuse. It need not be a clarity that like uh, is is as possible, you know, as clear as technically possible, because, you know, that's you know, that's not solving any of our problems. And then you start to read the Gospels, right? And it's kind of interesting that Jesus kind of obscures himself. There's you, you start to get some 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 interesting moments in scripture where, yeah, Jesus is walking around saying like, well, you know, I don't want to tell them, you know, quite that I'm the Messiah yet. Uh, and so even he's posturing his own identity relative to his purposes and revealing himself. And so I think there's a there's a whole theme to be worked out there. I, interestingly, I have since 
since then thought that there's another sense in which is it possible that God could be clearer than he is? And part of the thought experiment to, to go to there, and I does, do think it helps us reframe the question of God, um, uh, is what what would it look like for God to be clearer than he is? And then um, is is whatever we fill in, like really to here's the thought experiment, you know, come up with an example of what God could do that would make it make it clearer that he exists. Mm -hmm. And then whatever we fill in the blank with, I guess the question becomes, is that something that a highly advanced species could not do? So mm -hmm. a, a really interesting thought experiment is sort of like, you know, it feels like if. We all looked up, and this is the example I use, you know, and yeah. God, you know, full-on Monty Python-style God peels back the clouds, <laughs> and there he is, and oh, wow, God exists, you know, everybody sees him at the same time. You know, is that not, so? you know, yeah, everybody would probably believe in God if that happened, fair enough, but is that something that, a, you know, if we put our sci-fi hat on, is that something yeah. in a species could do? And what isn't something an advanced species could do? Then you start saying, wait, we're, you know, people are now talking about how we're all probably in a computer simulation. Yeah. You know, it sounds awfully similar to a creation, uh, <laughs> you know, and all those sorts of things. Uh, 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 you know, when you put it that way, it's actually not clear to me. It's actually not clear to me at this point. I, I'm, I, even though I still want to make that, that point yeah. in, in the essay, oh, yeah. that, like God could persuade us all in ways that he doesn't. But there's another sense in which God's being, in a sense, couldn't be clearer than it is mm -hmm. because his being isn't rendered clear really by some structure of creation because it's creation. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. can't write himself fully on the canvas of creation. And so it's actually, in some sense, inevitable uh, that it, that, yeah, anyway, anyway, I think, I think you get where I'm going with all yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's great. And not to mention Jesus, too, making himself clearer through Jesus. Yeah, also. yes, but it's ultimately in the human and in, in, yeah. in the human face of Christ that God is fully revealed. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joseph, I know that people are going to want to pick up bulwarks of belief or of unbelief and uh, keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to get the book? I, I work for the Davenant Institute. So I teach classes in philosophical and theological lay education for Davenant Hall. Um, I've got a blog there uh, that I haven't run for a while, but I plan to pick up soon. Pilgrim Faith Podcast is my podcast. Um, Plausible Faith Podcast is another podcast I run for the Davenant Institute. Um, both of those, uh, I've been on a, a writing break, but I, I'm actually starting uh, Pilgrim Faith back up in this this week. So um, uh, yeah, so Pilgrim Faith is a place you can find me and then Davenant Hall. Yep. Awesome. Well, Joseph, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciated it. Thank you. Okay, so coming out of that conversation, I really just want to hit on two things that stood out to me. There's, there's so many good, so much good stuff in there the one thing that i want to uh, just refer back to is the conversation or what uh, he said about maturity and that maturity involves not only ca the capacity to perform a particular action but also the refusal to do so and that sometimes i think we can you know <laughs> we i guess it's it's you know as we as we age as we grow older we think of maturity and the, the privileges that we gain from it 
or maybe maybe some of the responsibility that we gain from it as well and realizing that that responsibility often comes with with us laying down some of the things that maybe we we like doing for the sake of other people you know john maxwell always talked about um rights and responsibilities and the further you go up and uh and he said the further that you go up in in leadership you know the 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 more your responsibility gains or increases in in your rights or what you lay claim to decreases and i think that's a, a little bit how it can be for maturity sometimes as well too of us being willing to lay down lay down our rights lay down and pick up more of our responsibilities as well and the other thing and we uh we talked a little bit about this as well in relationship to our neighbor but i absolutely love what he says is that the service of the distant neighbor is achieved through the service of the immediate neighbor and so forth and i think sometimes we can get discouraged of of maybe we we want to make a bigger difference than than what we are currently making and we forget that sometimes makes making a difference means making a difference for the person who's right beside you or right down the street or making a difference across in the world starts by making a uh making a difference you know in your city or in your town or in your school or in your church or where maybe just in your family and that it's okay for it to start at a small school at a small scale. And that's enough. So those are a couple of things that this conversation made me think about. If you want to keep up with me and all the different things that I'm learning from, please subscribe to my Substack, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast. And you can keep up with all of the things that I am learning from and some of the things uh, that are just making me think as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. So I do want to say thank you again for Joseph for being on the podcast today. Thank you to Sam Masty for creating the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. And without, and yeah, until next time, keep learning and keep growing.